The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined from the States by the writer Peter Biskind, who is probably best known here as the author of the classic study of 70s cinema, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, and his new book turns to another golden or sort of golden age, but one of television. His new publication is Pandora's Box, The Greed, Lust and Lies That Broke Television. Now, welcome, Peter. I mean, you talk about television being broken, but in some ways, this is a study of a period when television got good. I mean, before the 1980s or early 1980s, as you describe it, television, particularly in the States, was a kind of wasteland, wasn't it? Why was that? Well, because uh, the business model that networks used was um, advertising sponsors. And sponsors did not want their, you know, their ads, their car ads, their whatever they were, drug ads, aspirin. They didn't want them adjacent to scenes of sex and violence or controversy, for that matter. So therefore, uh, advertisers exerted pressure on the networks to avoid that kind of programming. Consequently, each network set up a division called Standards and Practices, which enforced a kind of puritanical morality on network programming, such that even married couples were not shown sleeping in the same beds, but next, but rather twin beds next to each other. So it was kind of a crazy, the programming was called low, low LCD, lowest common denominator programming, you know, with the goal of reaching as many people as possible. And to reach as many people as possible, you didn't want to offend anyone. So they were more interested in making programming that didn't offend anyone than making programming that appealed to anyone. So that's basically what happened. And it sounds like even the people who were making this stuff had contempt for it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was somebody, one of my sources told me that, excuse me, they were previewing Seinfeld, I guess it was, at NBC. And the, the reaction was, well, we get it. We think it's funny, but our viewers won't. Or, you know, our viewers are too, too, the implication being that our viewers are too stupid to get it. <laughs> and so the big bang in this book is the arrival of cable. How did that change the game, particularly for, I guess, British viewers who won't, or listeners who won't be as quite as familiar with that? I mean, obviously, what changed ends up going all around the world. So it's still of interest, I think, to British listeners. But by cable at that point, you have to talk about HBO because HBO is the first cable service. And HBO uh, threw the sponsor model out the window and used a subscriber model. So what that meant was that if subscribers chose to see programming of their own free will, and in addition to that, the transmission apparatus of cable was privately owned, that meant that the Federal Communications Commission was sort of regulated radio and television, didn't have any jurisdiction over cable. So consequently, cable could indulge in all the sex, violence, and controversy it wanted, and HBO took advantage of that. Uh, to start with, 
it doesn't sound like HBO was making, as it were, great leaps forward artistically with all this freedom. I mean, what what was the sort of story of how they got into the position to start making the sort of television that actually was artistically exciting as well as just, you know, having sex and violence in it? Well, originally HBO didn't do much original programming because as um, Michael Fuchs put it, Michael Fuchs was, ran HBO at the very beginning for a number of years. And he said he didn't want to do original programming because mostly there were... Uh, HBO ran Hollywood movies, and he's and Hollywood movies were so well known. He was afraid that their original programming was going to look seedy and uh, and and amateurish. So he didn't want to go in that direction. Uh, after he left, HBO took a dip into original programming. First, they ran the, a show called The Larry Sanders Show, uh, which was a behind the scenes. Uh, of talk television show. Then they did Oz, which was set in a prison, which was extremely violent and violated every single taboo of uh, network television and really paved the way for HBO's golden age. And they did Sex and the City, which was, um, you know, four women talking about their sexual experiences. <laughs> that made a big splash. And then came The Sopranos, which sort of broke it all open. And uh, although a little bit, you know, Sopranos has gotten the credit for initiating the age of uh, peak TV. But as Tom Fontana, who was the showrunner of Oz, I think rightly claimed that really Oz was the first. And if if it hadn't been for Oz, there probably would have been no uh, Sopranos. And that, I mean, it's an amazing detail in your book that, like the opening sequence of Oz had the word Oz being tattooed onto somebody's ass, And that was like the showrunner, wasn't it? Yes, it was the showrunners. It was Fontana's uh, arm. And, and Chris Albrecht, who was in charge of uh, programming at that point, thought, well, if he's willing to put a tattoo on his arm, he's, he's right for the show. I mean, initially they didn't want, um, there were questions about Tom Fontana because HBO made it a article of faith not to use any, uh, anybody from network television. And Tom Fontana had worked on St. Elsewhere and Homicide Life on the Streets, a couple of late network shows. By late, I mean close to the beginning of HBO. And so there were questions about whether Tom Fontana could think HBO as opposed to thinking like a network person. So he proved that he could. And, you know, they chatted about the show, obviously. And Albrecht said, don't worry about likable characters as long as they're interesting. And likable characters had been a, a religion on network. And once you dump likable characters, you were free to do whatever you wanted, pretty much. And Oz took advantage of that. And that thing you're talking about. And they were all like sadists and, and Aryan nation types, completely unpleasant people, but all interesting. Well, that... The point that you make, which seems to run through the book like a golden thread, that through peak TV you had what I think you often call good-bad protagonists. You've got these characters who are morally complex or downright horrible. There seem to be an awful lot of good-bad protagonists on the business side of the book. I mean, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about some more of them later, but the history of these early, not only the showrunners, but the suits, these people seem to be deeply unpleasant, a lot of them. I mean, they were vicious, they were backstabbing, they were 
you know, constantly high on drugs. Uh, they were kind of monomaniacs. I mean, what was it that attracted them to this world? Well, I think, you know, to be successful in that world, you had to be aggressive, you had to be smart, and you had to be talented. But there was a lot of competition. So consequently, the showrunners adopted any means necessary, you know, to get their shows on to and have their shows survive more than one or two seasons because it was extremely competitive. And uh, I don't think that's any surprise. I mean, it's the same, pretty much the same as the movie business. Yeah, I mean, how does it compare to the movie business when you're, I mean, you're looking at, you know, when you, your classic study of the movie business is a little bit earlier than this, but are the big screen and the small screen kind of analogous or are they different worlds? Well, they're both. They're obviously analogous and they're, you know, they're both filmed entertainment. But the biggest difference, I guess, is that uh, in movies, directors are the powerful figures who run the show, whereas in TV, it was the writers who not only got to write the shows, but also became, quote unquote, showrunners and ran the show. They functioned as directors. And so the writers had much more control in TV than they did in uh, movies. You know, one of the, the kind of sacred monsters of the book is, is the showrunner writer for The Sopranos, David Chase, I think his name is. What was it that made his work so influential and so special? Why did The Sopranos work so well? And what did it lead to? Well, for one thing, it was a big, you know, the fact that it did work so well was a huge surprise. Nobody expected it. I mean, when they cast Jim Gandolfini as Tony Soprano, uh, Jeff Bukas, who was head of HBO at that point, said no network in their right mind would have cast somebody that big, that fat, that unattractive in, in, in classical network terms uh, to be the star of a show that was going to appear every week, you know, for God knows how many episodes and seasons and episodes. So um, the fact that it worked at all was a surprise to HBO as well as everybody else. Why did it work so well? It's hard to say. Uh, Gandolfini turned out to be a very appealing character, uh, even though he did, in traditional terms, bad things. He had a code of his own, which he um, subscribed to. And one way that a lot of these shows got away with their so-called anti-heroes was there were always people that were worse. <laughs> so that um, <laughs> by comparison, the anti-hero appeared to be a hero. And the other thing is that um, the whole idea of anti-heroes was based on the, on the notion that society was not fairly organized. In other words, um, the game was set you know, against the little guy. And in order to survive, you had to break the rules. And that was essentially, you know, the, the guiding notion of the antihero. And I think many people agreed with that, that society wasn't fairly organized, that the people who were underrepresented, that didn't have money, that were poor, didn't get a fair a break. And the antihero understood that and upset the apple cart by going outside, you know, the normal norms of, of, that, of the way that society was organized. And so these shows in that sense, would you say they were political? Were they reflecting not just a moment in... Just yeah, a they moment were very in... political because the anti-heroes essentially were extremists, what we call, now we call extremists, of the left and the right. And there were specimens of both. I don't know how, if you like, the mainstream kind of Mr. Rogers network world 
reacted to the explosion in popularity of this stuff? I mean, was it, I remember there's that famous quote when George W. Bush said American families should be more like the Waltons. Sorry, it's George Herbert Walker Bush, wasn't it? Who said American families should be more like the Waltons and less like the Simpsons. I mean, was that sort of divide, you know, making itself manifest? When The Sopranos started, the head of NBC wrote a, a, a letter that, you know, that he sent out to heads of other networks and the other executives saying it wasn't fair that The Sopranos could indulge in all this uh, sex and violence. And he was essentially practically asking for The Sopranos to be censored by the FCC. And uh, Bukas pondered whether to reply. And um, and eventually he didn't because he felt, you know, that that this was more of a compliment than a uh, criticism. Yeah, the audience reaction was, I wonder if it's right to say, disconcerting in some ways to the showrunners because with things like Soprano and and even Deadwood which followed and was even more profane and and vicious there was this huge core of people who were like less yakking more whacking you know who were kind of really on board for the violence and these people who are trying to make shows about the nature of evil and the conflicted human soul these guys were like all in for the evil yeah that was a a common theme that um the showrunners would refer to across this whole spectrum of anti-hero shows. I guess the most um, extreme example of that was Breaking Bad, where uh, Vince Gilligan said that he had lost all um, respect for his heroes, so-called, or his anti-hero. And no matter what the the hero, the anti-hero did, uh, spectators, viewers would applaud, you know, and that he couldn't have been bad enough to satisfy viewers. So, and that was true across the board, the Sopranos and, and Deadwood as well. Viewers embraced these anti-heroes. And as I said, they couldn't have been anti enough uh, to satisfy the spectators. Um, I mean, Walter White in Breaking Bad, uh, you know, apparently his the actress who played his wife got a lot of mail saying, why aren't you more supportive of him? And here's a guy who, killed, you know, you know, made meth and killed, you know, a lot of people. Yeah. And uh, those early shows, I mean, we'll, we'll kind of Breaking Bad comes a little later in the story, but those early shows, they were very kind of very male, weren't they? Yes, they I mean, were very male-oriented male except for um, Sex and the City and uh, occasionally Damages that was made by uh, FX and starred Glenn Close there were exceptions to that, but most of them were very male-oriented, yes. Did that culture start to change? Well, as I said, I mean, there were exceptions to that. And once the anti-hero became established and was sort of copied from streamer to streamer and from cable channel to cable channel, you started to get weeds, for example, that um, Genji Cohen wrote in Orange is the New Black. Uh, yes, so it did start to change, and you got a lot of female-oriented shows. Homeland, of course, a lot of those kinds of shows. Judgey Cohen sounds like a really interesting creator, actually. I mean, was she sort of an outlier when she started working as a showrunner? Yeah, she was very much of an an outlier. I mean, a friend of hers, a boyfriend of hers told her she had as much chance writing for television as getting elected to Congress. (laughs) And she persisted. And she was, you know, she was a, you know, sort of constitutionally a naysayer. 
and she loved the freedom that Cable provided. And her shows, you know, Weeds, the main character, is a woman uh, dope dealer. And Orange is the New Black, you got a whole prison full of bad girls. And that was a real breakthrough. Yeah, that Cable moment was, as it turned out, kind of a moment. Um, very early on, you know, we get this sort of little prolapsus with this tiny little organization called Netflix, which is like posting DVDs to people. Did anybody see what that was going to turn into? Well, the people who organized Netflix certainly saw what it was going to turn into, or at least they hoped what they hoped it would turn into. Netflix started with a bang. The turning point for them was that, you know, initially they were just delivering movies through in little red envelopes, but then they went into original programming. And House of Cards came along. And House of Cards initially approached uh, HBO because HBO was the first stop for any producer. And, uh, HBO gave them a deal for one, one for a pilot, which is the way it was usually done because so few shows survived more than one season. So, so few shows, even, even after they'd been granted a pilot, actually went to series. But the networks, the cablers, and were very cautious about green lighting shows. And they usually grant green lit a pilot before going to series. Netflix came along and gave them a $100 million contract for two seasons, two complete seasons, which was completely uh, off the boards. Nobody did anything like that. So, uh, Ted Sarandos, who was running Netflix at the time and still running Netflix, everyone told him he was crazy, but he was determined to put um, Netflix on the map. They had these uh, algorithms and you know, which they claimed could predict anything they you know predict, predict everything essentially. And they uh, researched um, Kevin Spacey films because Kevin, Kevin Spacey was the star of House of Cars. House of Cars was based on a British House of Cars, and they went and they put the British House of Cars through their algorithms. And then they put um, shows about political shows set in Washington, D.C. through their algorithms. And their algorithms reported on all three counts that they should do it, and they did. So that was the beginning of um, of Netflix. And then they went the same year they did Orange is the New Black because they were afraid that people would say, oh, well, House of Cards was successful because David Fincher was the showrunner, David Fincher being a really successful Hollywood director. But once they did Orange is the New Black without a big name Hollywood director, nobody could say that Showtime, that Netflix um, could not be successful. Now, the success of Netflix... That early business model is kind of because now we're so used to it, essentially, you know, having taken over the world. There's a lovely line in it somewhere where someone says it's, you know, it's like thinking the Albanian army is going to take over the world. Well, that was Jeff Bukas, who was head of HBO. And everybody was getting all excited about streaming when they saw what Netflix was doing. And Bukas, and probably words that he now regrets, said, oh, you know, well, also that all the networks, the networks and the and the cablers were leasing their uh, material, their shows to Netflix. So there was a question about whether Netflix was a friend or an enemy. It was a friend in the to the extent that because say um, Breaking Bad screened on Netflix, it essentially Netflix turned Breaking Bad into a hit, 
when it was not so much of a, it, they were going to terminate it on um, AMC. But on the other hand, it had the potential for competing with uh, the cable channels. So the question was, you know, as I said, was whether it was a friend or a foe. And it turned out to be more of a foe than a lot of the cablers anticipated. I forget the question. Yeah, and some of the, some of them ended up. Well, it, it's this early thing where Netflix is is sort of expanding like crazy and not making any money and not making any money and not making any money, and yet they they somehow come out on top. Well, um, partly because it became a darling of Wall Street, and Wall Street treated it like a tech company. It didn't uh, care that Netflix wasn't making any money, but it embraced it on the basis of the fact that it had this huge subscriber growth. And Netflix was adding subscribers, millions and millions of subscribers every quarter. And uh, Wall Street judged it on the basis of that and supported its stock on the basis of that. And, you know, it's a business story, but it's also an, uh, an artistic story. How did it, you know, these two kind of major innovations, I guess, that Netflix, you know, you said when they dropped House of Cards, they put the whole season out at once. They binged, yeah, where you could watch a whole season <laughs> in one day if you wanted to stay up that long. Well, binging had a huge impact. And what it meant was going back way back to network, the rule of thumb was that on a network show, even a devoted viewer would only watch one out of four episodes. So each episode was self-contained. And they were called closed shows. And and by self-contained, I mean the characters, each episode had a complete story and the characters never changed because otherwise it would just, if given how few episodes uh, a viewer would watch, if characters changed, they would be confused. And the whole, you know, network went out of its way not to confuse characters, not to confuse viewers, excuse me. Binging meant that you could have a story arc that lasted for a full season. And that gave writers an enormous freedom and an enormous advantage. And it attracted scores of writers who had avoided network, uh, like the play, because it was so limiting. So you could have a story arc. I mean, uh, in terms of Breaking Bad, Vince Gilligan would always say that he uh, took Walter White from uh, Mr. Chips to Scarface. And that sort of epitomizes the freedom that um, binging uh, allowed writers. Do you think that the claims that were made for television or have been made for television in the last couple of decades, that it's now the preeminent narrative art form, that it is discovering its or has been discovering possibilities in the same way that, say, at the, towards the end of the 19th century, the novel was doing that? Do you think that's a, a useful analogy? Well, I, I do think it was a useful analogy. And um, I think uh, Glenn Close said something like very close to that when she took uh, the role in Damages. And I think it's true, or at least it was true. And the, the sad thing is that it's now changing. And over the course that I was, you know, I started this book as a, uh, a Valentine, you know, to peak TV with exactly that premise that here we had, you know, at our fingertips, an art form that was as um, complex and as, as uh, wonderful as, in many respects as the 19th century novel. But over the course of the several years I was writing the book, 
uh, things started to change. And now it's questionable. People are writing articles about the end of peak TV. It's questionable how long this is going to last and whether it's over. And I'm not talking so much about the strikes and the uh, pandemic, which certainly contributed to the difficulties now facing streaming, but to uh, other things that are sort of endemic to, to the medium, you know, the competition between streamers, the attempt to reach as many viewers as possible, the question of whether streaming is actually as profitable as people thought it was going to be at the beginning. Yeah, why did that change, do you think? I mean, is it you talk about competition, and actually we should mention there's this, a triumvirate emerges in the course of your books, if that's the right way to diagnose it, that Amazon enters and then Apple enters. And, you know, one of them has, well, both of them have much, much deeper pockets, in a sense, than Netflix. How does that affect the dynamic of, of what's coming out and the competition for interesting work? Well, Reed Hastings, who started Netflix, talking about people who probably regretted their uh, what they'd said, said his only competition was sleep. And that was true while networks had, Netflix had no competition. But uh, as you say, um, Amazon entered the fray with Amazon Prime Video, and Apple entered the fray with Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, and there were also, of course, Disney entered with Disney+. Plus. And uh, when AT&T bought Warner Brothers and Discovery, uh, now we have, not only we have HBO+, Plus, but it's been turned, they, they changed the name to Max. So there's plenty of competition. And um, what happens is that in that competition, each streamer reaches for you know, the broadest possible audience. Now, what happened to Netflix was that, uh, which had been highly valued by Wall Street, as I said, uh, based on its growth, eventually the growth came to an end and it started losing subscribers. And that freaked everybody out. And Netflix being the poor streamer, the streamer that started it all, people got jittery and started and started to fear that as I said, Netflix. I mean, uh, streamers were not going to be as as profitable as people thought they were, and the company, you know, and Netflix had never made any money. It still hasn't made any money. It still has its running of debt. And as somebody said, nobody's ever made any money just marketing content. You know, even when you go to the movies, you have a snack bar when you walk in, and th those make a lot of money for um, for theaters. So it became clear that. Streaming was much more of a dicey proposition than people thought originally. And streaming started to change. Now they have Netflix. And, and again, initially, Netflix, as the founder of streaming, realized that it had to do more than just um, put out shows and, and binge. First of all, it stopped binging, more or less, because it was to realize how expensive it was. Initially, they rationalized binging by saying, well, it's like buying a book. Um, you know, you don't have to sit, read, a whole, you know, if you buy a novel, you don't have to read the whole thing at once, but you can if you want to. Uh, but the difference was that buying a novel, you spent 25 or $30, putting out a season of Netflix show could cost you um, millions and millions of dollars. So they couldn't afford to binge anymore. Then the next thing you know, they're starting ad supported tiers. Now, one of the um, hallmarks of streaming was no ads. And that was one of the big selling points. 
And then they started uh, cracking down on password sharing. Sharing passwords had been another selling point for Netflix because, you know, if you had uh, children, if you subscribed to Netflix and you had children who lived in a different city or a different apartment, apartment in a different city, could use the same passwords. Now they're cracking down on that. So they're essentially eliminating everything that made Netflix Netflix and and backtracking on the sort of so-called Netflix revolution. So that none of that is good. It's a good sign for uh, programming. And now if you partly as a result of the pandemic or partly result of the competition among the streamers, if you go and try to find something to watch on streaming now, it's extremely difficult. Initially, the problem was there was too much and it was hard to decide what to watch. And you had an embarrassment of riches. Now you have a paucity of riches. Yeah, this question of simultaneity, you know, the idea that you drop a whole season once. Did the arrival of social media and the way that people built word of mouth by talking about shows they'd just seen have an effect on on the way they started to schedule them? They went back in some cases to actually doing an episode a week, just like the old days. Well, yeah, I mean, social media, you know, you had the development of these fandom and uh, fierce followers of the shows who would try to actually, uh, you know, the most amusing example of that is Westworld on HBO, where the fans would um, try to outsmart the showrunners and figure out what was going to happen next. And they ended up guessing a couple of climaxes of of different seasons. And the, the showrunners responded by making the shows much more convoluted and to the extent that eventually they were so convoluted that um, nobody could follow them. And then, <laughs> they were, then they were so in that sense, uh, <laughs> the fandom uh, has had a bad effect on some of these shows. So it's a mixed bag. The fans have been very vocal supporters of these shows at the same time they've had a, uh, to some degree, a malign effect on the shows. I'm intrigued by something, and I think you mention it in the context of Stranger Things, which maybe that was the first time it happened, but that it suddenly sort of occurred to people, I guess, when you're streaming, it doesn't really matter how long an episode is. You know, this traditional structure, which muscle memory says, we'll do an hour. They'd go, oh, why don't we do episode five? Can be an hour and 20 minutes, and episode six will be you know, 40 minutes. I, never, I noticed it, for instance, in The Walking Dead. There's one of them that's, you know, feature length and others that are much shorter. Is that a kind of anxious-making breakdown of, of the traditional narrative structures or is it liberating, do you think? Well, I think all these things were sort of double-edged swords. You know, uh, I think the fact that you lost the structure, you know, the streaming, um, the shows could go on more than an hour, was both good and bad. I mean, it gave writers more freedom to develop the shows and develop the plot lines and the character development. But it also meant that shows went on for too long. And somehow the writers seemed to feel that they had to fill empty space. And many of these series, the seasons, felt like that there were too many episodes and the episodes were too long. So there's definitely that factor to take into account. Do you think that the there's an important shift that goes on as well when you said, you know, certainly when you describe the early 80s, you know, what's amazing and exciting about those shows that were were breakthroughs for AMC or for HBO is that often they were kind of almost unknown writers coming up with ideas that 
the networks wouldn't touch, that seemed kind of crazy and extraordinary. And some commissioning editors would say, I've got, you know, this works. I'll follow a hunch on this. And Netflix comes along and says, you know, we have the data. We can figure out the game, you know, that House of Cards is going to work. Is the algorithm essentially something that's moving us towards a blander um, programming thing? I think there are certainly people who would argue that the algorithm itself is ridiculous. In fact, some people have gone on the record saying you can't mathematic yourself to uh, or algorithm yourself to a hit show. Um, Netflix has turned out a lot of flops using the algorithm. So um, like anything else, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. I mean, there's certainly no guarantee that uh, that any given show is going to work. Do the streamers mostly, though, cleave to the algorithmic model now? Or are they, are, are they still taking chances on the unexpected? I think they're still taking chances. I mean, probably Netflix uses algorithms more than anybody else. But, you know, there were no indications that the other streamers used algorithms. I mean, taking, for example, um, AMC didn't use algorithms at all, you know, and just... They found Mad Men on the uh, one of the executives, Christina Wayne, found Mad Men, the script for Mad Men at the bottom of a pile of scripts, and she read it and loved it, and she did it, you know, the quote unquote old fashioned way. I think algorithms are, you know, more or less peculiar to Netflix. Yeah. Now, actually, you, you mentioned Christina Wayne, and she's one of the people. They're often women, but not always. Who came to a very sticky end unexpectedly and apparently undeservedly. The corporate cultures of these places, and I'm thinking it certainly seems to be obvious in Netflix, incredibly kind of like people are being fired all the time, quite randomly, it seems. I mean, Netflix seems almost kind of Maoist. You describe how there's a, um, I can't remember what the phrase is, but there's a sort of thing that you have to be better than merely good. They're sort of culling people. Regularly, and if they call them, they're also sort of denouncing them in a kind of Maoist circle of criticism. Well, I think I would say two things about that. Netflix, yeah, had a very uh, competitive tech culture, and people were frequently hired and fired and sequentially, you know. Um, but I think it's a mistake to say that it, it was it wasn't random. It was based on performance, and I mean, there were very high standards for performance, but it was still it was based on performance, and it was also based on especially recently when Netflix has kind of reconfigured itself like the networks and the uh, studios that it initially rejected. They fired a bunch of people who were connected with the quote unquote old Netflix and hired some studio people or, you know, people with studio backgrounds just because they wanted to expand in, you know, they're fighting for the biggest audience possible and studio and network people have the experience to reach that audience, mainly, uh, and not good experience in the sense that mainly uh, blending out the shows, eliminating controversy, tamping down sex and violence. I mean, a lot of the Netflix shows, like The Crown and um, Bridgerton, could have been made by networks. And the other thing I would say, that often it's women who get fired. And I thought you were going to ask me about the fact that all these companies are, are very uh, male-oriented in terms of their executive ranks. And I don't know that any of them have uh, women at the very top. And forget about uh, minorities or underrepresented people. I mean, they make stabs in those directions, but it's mainly cosmetic, I think. Yeah, I mean, you talk about Me Too 
kind of crossing the radar, but it's I think there was quite a cynical way as you described it, in which which it was kind of taken up by some of these streamers and then more or less sort of dropped as it went out of fashion. Yeah, I mean I think that's true. And as the competition became stiffer, I think they got rid of a lot of the um the women that they had hired. And is it to come to conclusion, is it do you think all over now? I mean is it you, you sort of talk in your final chapter about the stream is essentially becoming networks again. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I floated that idea. I'm not sure that that's going to happen. I mean, I think for one thing, you know, for example, Netflix just uh, added 9 million subscribers in the last quarter, which was way beyond anybody's expectations. So I think it's premature to call um, the streamers dead or streaming dead by any means. Um, on the other hand, the content that the streamers are putting out is getting more and more, as I said, more and more bland. So I think that there's no question that that's happening. The other part of that, my conclusion, which I, I floated, was that the networks in their attempts to compete with the streamers are getting a little bit edgier. You know, For example, there's a show by David E. Kelly called Big Sky, which I think was on ABC, and it was quite violent and more so than uh, your normal um, network show. And the Kings, you know, Robert and Michelle King, who write for both network and streaming and cable, they had um, The Good Wife as their best known show. They had a show on network called Evil, which they described as streaming for network. So I guess I was arguing that if uh, networks get edgier, and streamers become blander, they're going to sort of meet in the muddy middle, and the differences between them are crumbling. And um, I think that's a possible scenario. I think the, the big question is, will networks actually get any edgier than they are now? Probably not. So, But definitely, um, the other part of that is that the, uh, the streamers are no question that they're getting more and more um, bland. You know, I don't think it's going to end tomorrow, but uh, as I said, I find it really hard to find stuff to watch now. Part of that is a result of the after effects of the strikes and the pandemic, but I think also part of that is the way streaming has developed. I mean, Reed Hastings said, we have a lot to learn from Hollywood, which, you know, it would be anathema or would have been anathema for, say, if that came out of the mouth of an HBO executive 20 years ago. Yeah. Do you think that in terms of visual storytelling, the writers and the directors who really want to break new ground are still looking at television though? Well, there's no other place to work. Because, <laughs> you know, the movies have just sort of thrown in the towel. Although I don't want to exaggerate. I mean, this was a good summer you know, with Oppenheimer and uh, Barbie. It was an unusual summer. And there's interest, some couple of interesting things coming down the pike now. But I think for the, on the whole, you know, the superhero phenomenon, the Marvel, the Marvelization of movies, people are always talking about superhero fatigue and what is it going to set in. But it's so far, it hasn't really. Marvel's having a little bit of difficulty now. But, um, you know, I think that movies, unless there's a big change, I think movies have basically had it. Oh, you know, the Killers of the Flower Moon which, uh, you know, has released the old-fashioned way, which is going to be in theaters first. And then after, what is it, three weeks, it's going to go to Apple TV+. Plus. I think people are going to sit these shows out 
in the theater, I mean, wait out the theatrical distribution and watch them at home. We shall see. Uh, Peter Biskind, thank you very much indeed for your time.